Hey everyone, this is another Overtime Patreon preview. In this episode, we go over a pamphlet that was written by the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, about their delegation that they sent over to the Soviet Union, and they wrote a little bit about their experiences, and we talk about it. We learn a little bit about uh, Soviet history in a very unique time period, 1945 just after World War II, before the kickoff of the second major Red Scare. If you'd like the full episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash workstoppage. It is how we get any funding for this at all. We are very appreciative to anyone willing to support the show. And I guess without further ado, here is the preview. Uh, one of the things that we love to do is look at history when trying to assess the best ways to organize and build power for the working class, as we do. In this episode, we're going to look at a pamphlet issued by the Congress of Industrial Organizations, also known as the CIO, back in October of 1945, 10 years before they merged with the AFL. This pamphlet differs from the typical one you'd expect from a union as it's not about the benefits of organizing, how to stand up to the boss, or your legal rights on the job, although it is a little bit that. Uh, this fascinating piece of history describes when the CIO sent a delegation to the Soviet Union and reported back what conditions were like there and what their suggestions for relations with the Soviet Union were. A scan of this pamphlet was actually provided by uh, Lady Idzahar, who's a historian and YouTube and TikTok person. Uh, it's available on her website. I will also link it in the episode description. Uh, the delegation itself, though, was made up of six vice presidents, two general counsels, two publicity directors, and was primarily written by the secretary treasurer at the time. Uh, it was distributed for 15 cents, and uh, I have this obsession with inflation calculations as of doing this show, so I kind of calculated that it's about $2.51 today. Pretty reasonable. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it was also sold, or it, but it was also sold in bulk to unions uh, and probably organizations as well to share with their members. Uh, it was a hundred copies for ten dollars and five hundred five hundred copies for forty dollars. Uh, I don't know why that matters, but I thought it was a neat little piece of information. Uh, I, I I think it's cool, you know, that they at least. Because this period is so weird in U.S. history because we're so used to just. U.S. just rabidly anti-communist to the point of essentially becoming the secular religion of the United States. And in just a few short years after this was published, it would reassert itself that way. Um, because again, like we talk about the Red Scare being in the McCarthy era, but it started even like there was a previous Red Scare, you know, right after World War One, you had the Palmer raids and everything. So immediately, like during the, the, the Bolshevik Revolution, there was already huge amounts of of anti-communism like being spread around but of course because of the alliance you know made during world war ii uh very made very reluctantly by the united states also i will add um they really really didn't want to have to fight their friends that they had been supporting in germany <laughs> i just so remember learning about this sort of thing like in in school in middle school or whatever when we were first learning world history mm -hmm. and like there's this period of time where they're like portraying the soviet union as good because it's like against you know the nazis and all that and 
Uh, it made me confused when suddenly the Soviet Union was bad. And yeah. I'm like, wait a minute, how am I actually supposed to understand this? And he, uh, I never actually got that answer until I was a, a full-fledged adult and decided to look into it myself. <laughs> look, Lena, if there's anything I've learned about the Soviet Union from going over old American propaganda, it's that the Soviet Union is, is, is like a big scary bear. If it's pointed at you, that's very bad. But if it's pointed at someone you don't like, that's nominally kind of good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you see those like, uh, this soldier is your friend. He fights for freedom (laughs) posters that they were putting out at the time. And it's like, you know, a Red Army soldier. And it's just like, boy, that's really weird when you think about it three years later. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah, but we'll get more into a little bit of that in, in uh, m- further into the episode. But the preface or the opening section of this book uh, is a statement from President Philip Murray of the CIO titled, quote, to promote friendship and understanding, end quote. Hell yeah. uh, a very hopeful beginning to a uh, strikingly hopeful piece, especially considering the massive increase in anti-communism in the U.S. just a couple of years later, as Dan was kind of indicating. And so we're going to start with this slightly longer quote of the actual uh, this uh, section from the pamphlet. The victory of the United Nations over the military power of fascism opened up prospects of a new era of international understanding, democratic progress, world peace, and prosperity. The Congress of Industrial Organizations, the vanguard of American labor, rallied behind the plans of President Roosevelt and other leaders of the United Nations to continue this wartime unity into the post-war period. Because we believe that unity between governments must be based on unity among peoples, we set about forging unbreakable unity among the working people of all countries and played a leading part in the formation of the World Federation of Trade Unions. In pursuit of this general purpose, the CIO has also been developing the exchange of fraternal labor delegations and encouraging all other steps that will promote a closer understanding between the workers of the United States and other countries. The following report of Secretary-Treasurer James B. Carey, who was the chairman of the CIO delegation to the Soviet Union, embodies the observations of a representative group of outstanding CIO leaders who visited that country as guests of the All-Union Central Council of Trade Unions, in return for a visit paid to the United States by a Soviet trade union delegation invited by the CIO. I consider this a document of first-rate importance, not only for American labor, but for all who are interested in knowing the truth about the Soviet trade union movement and in promoting friendship and understanding between the peoples of our two countries. Unfortunately, there are those who prefer to sow seeds of distrust and suspicion, who magnify the social and cultural differences into unbridgeable gulfs, and who seek to divide rather than to unite the world. It is my hope that this report will help to prevent the division of the world into hostile blocks and to eliminate hostility against the great people whose cooperation was so essential to the United Nations victory and whose continued friendship and cooperation is equally essential for lasting peace and world prosperity. That's so cool. And it stands in such stark contrast to what you hear from anti-communists about what the message of communists and trade organizers and stuff is, which is that like, we're rabid, violent dogs who want to come and take everything you have. And then you read the literature and it's like, we went to the Soviet Union and it was really nice and we want everyone to be nice to each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, it's also good to not get too romantic about President Murray because despite his kind words in this pamphlet, he led the purge of communist organizers uh, within the CIO four years later 
While he was unwilling to sign federal documents that directly outed communists, this was due to a stand against federal interference in unions rather than a principled defense of his allies at the time on the left. He later agreed to a, quote, compromise banning communists from union leadership through a horseshoe theory clause that put communists and fascists in the same category since over the past few years he had gotten more right-wing leaders into the le- into leadership positions in the CIO this great purge of the CIO ultimately included the UE one of our favorite unions and the ILWU another one of our favorite unions as well as many other progressive unions we talked about this just a little bit in our Decline of American Unionism series. It kind of seems like all the cool kids got uh, purged by President Murray. Like, it should honestly, at this point in the story, be a badge of honor. <laughs> like, yeah, like, just for some historical background on this, like, with the CIO itself, the CIO was always a rather uh, weird, like, united front formation, kind of, of basically everybody who opposed the AFL's very conservative craft unionism. So that meant that included groups like the otherwise pretty right wing, like Association of Catholic Trade Unionists, which was explicitly anti-communist and like largely actually existed to provide like a, a counterweight to how powerful many of the more radical groups like CPUSA and before, but before them, even the IWW had been as far as, you know, pushing workers to the left and showing, you know, that there is an option beyond capitalism that we could be fighting for. And so there was always this sort of kind of uneasy alliance in there because you had, you know, on one side, these, these Catholic groups and a lot of like otherwise pretty right wing groups, but who oppose that, the the craft policies of the AFL on mostly pragmatic grounds because they're like just, this just doesn't work like this isn't <laughs> this is not helping the labor movement grow at the rate that it would be if we move to an industrial unionist style of policy and so they supported the CIO but then of course for much of its existence the very best organizers within the CIO were communists. Uh, I mean, again, like like those unions you mentioned, the UE, the ILWU, uh, there was a whole bunch of others, uh, including, unfortunately, several unions that no longer exist, like mine, mill, and smelter workers, food and tobacco workers, and the International Fur and Leather Workers Union, which were all also expelled. And these had included, you know, some of just the absolute, like, you know, I I don't know, the the vanguard of the organizers Mm -hmm. within the CIO. And so... It really shows the willingness to really sacrifice the vitality of the, the the organization in order to stay in line with the anti-communism that was basically coming down from uh, above during this during the the next few years after this pamphlet was issued. And actually, there's one thing also just that he says in that intro that I just think is so ironic because he talks about how proud they were to be a part of the leading part in the formation of the World Federation of Trade Unions because just, I I think about a decade after this, maybe not even a decade after, that the U.S. would completely condemn the World Federation of Trade Unions as a communist-dominated, like, fake organization. And so they would form the, like, the, I believe it's the International Conference of Free Trade Unionists, 
and that was in line with their formation of groups like the AIFLD, which we talked about in, in the AFL-CIA episodes. And they set up a comp- – because that's the thing. He's like – in this, he's, he's just like, uh, we, we, we need to fight the people who prefer to sow seeds of distrust and who want to divide rather than unite the world. And then just a few years after this, he and the other commun- anti-communist leaders like within the CIO would bow to pressure from the state and do exactly the thing – that he's condemning in this intro. Yeah, I the uh, re, the recreated world trait, like they added the word free to it. If they add the word free to something, it's probably not actually that. Yeah, that's, I mean, like that's what, a good general rule on naming from like a Western <laughs> perspective. Yeah, I mean, like what I'm gathering from what you said, Dan, is they established Radio Free Trade Union and put a Juan Guaido in charge. And yes, a hundred percent. That's exactly <laughs> what they did. I, I looked it up just now. It was formed in 1949. So right at the heart, right at the height of McCarthyism, just a few years after this came out, they completely went backwards on this stuff. Again, never trust uh, anti-communists. <laughs> They are liars. Yeah, absolutely. But before these betrayals, uh, before the abandonment of the best organizers in the CIO for the cynical political opportunism that would ultimately destroy the CIO as an independent organization, Murray and the CIO were just as involved in the temporary friendship relationship between the U.S. and the USSR in the immediate aftermath of the war as the rest of American society. But first, let's try to place this a bit more in its historical context for the listeners, because I think sometimes we can kind of get a little uh, separated from what was actually going on at the time. But to set the stage, when this pamphlet is published, the USSR is less than 30 years old. Uh, Joseph Stalin is the general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. World War II has just ended, where 27 million Soviet people lost their lives in the great patriotic war against fascism this victory saved millions around the world from slavery and death but came at an unfathomable cost to the young socialist nation and its people speaking to this historical sacrifice in the pamphlet vice president reed robinson addressed the all union central council of trade unions the AUCCTU. Uh, which is how we're going to continue to refer to it throughout the episode, Uh, they said, quote, We've seen the price you have paid to establish freedom for all people in the world. We in America are determined that no force within or without is ever going to turn us against your people again. We must break down the propaganda that you have no democracy as we have, end quote. Damn. I agree, man. I wish you just actually did that. <laughs> right? I think yeah, we're going to come back to that very often as like how r- truly hopeful and how we really wish this was the world that was created. Yeah, right? I really just like after he says like no force within or without is ever going to turn us against your people again. I just hear Ron Howard saying that was a lie. And then I hear the <laughs> Curb Your Enthusiasm music start playing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, one experience described by the delegation in relation to this great price is an exhibition that they went to that gave information about the heroic defense of Leningrad, where they saw, quote, pictures and exhibits of devastation, suffering, death, and heroic resistance, end quote, as well as one of the most emblematic facets of daily life under siege, the common ration, which was a very low-quality bread made from what little could be scrapped together. Now, uh, another vice president, 
James Carey said, quote, to the heroic people of Leningrad, we hail your great feats that have surpassed anything in history. What you have accomplished to defend the freedom of the people of your land and the civilization of the world will remain in the memory of the workers forever. On to victory together with peace and prosperity, end quote. Again, just like, and I don't want to keep doing this because there's going to be a lot of quotes like this throughout the episode. Uh, just real optimism that ends up not uh, coming to uh, historical fruition after a couple years. Well, and this stuff is is always just, it's so frustrating to read this stuff because it's like, so we know structurally, of course, that, you know, the U.S. capitalist state had, had no intention of staying long-term allies with the Soviet Union. But at the same time, the trade union movement and its leadership uh, was not structurally, you know, over-determined to, to, to pull out some Althusserian language, like it, it, that it would inevitably end up following the same path. Now you can, you know, we can talk about the bureaucrat, the bureaucratization of uh, trade union leaderships, especially after the passage of the NLRA another time. Uh, there's a whole argument and debate in labor theory about that. Um, but like, ultimately, the thing is, it's like they're working class organizations. Like in this case, you know, in the way history played out, a lot of them did end up siding with the capitalist state against the socialist movement around the world. Uh, to the detriment of workers everywhere, including in the United States. Um, but there's absolutely, you know, a, a possibility that they could have gone the other way, that they could have resisted the anti-communist turn. Not that, and, and hey, not that they would have won, but like th there could have been more pushback against that. But instead, that unified, that, that like shaky united front that had been put together to form the CIO once the pressure started to come on from the state and once that real short, like less than a decade period of thaw between the U.S. and the USSR finally ended, like they just basically took the opportunistic route of, well, yeah, these communists have been useful, but I'm not going to stick my neck out for them. So the, we're getting a lot of pressure from the government to get rid of them. And also, they also, you know... We have a lot of opportunities for American businesses to make so much money with this new Marshall Plan thing that these communists won't stop telling us is a bad idea and is bad for the people of Europe. And I don't know why they keep telling me that American companies buying all the productive forces in Europe is going to be a bad thing for Europeans. I think it sounds great. And so let's just kick the communists to the curb. That's definitely a direct quote and not a thing I just made up to encapsulate their political position. <laughs> Yeah. 
Let's go, let's go. 